This episode is sponsored by JMR Rentals, professional digital cinema and broadcast rentals in Brooklyn, New York. To find out more, visit their website, jmrny.com. Hello and welcome to No Rest for the Weekend, where we go behind the scenes and talk to the creators of independent entertainment. I'm Jason Godby, and joining me via Zoom today, he is the director of the new documentary, Suzy Q, Mr. Liam Furmisher. Welcome, Liam. Uh, thanks for having us, Jason. All the way, you're coming to us from down under? Melbourne, Australia. And is that, uh, that's where you're from originally, obviously. Yeah, yeah, I was born here, so... Yeah. Uh, so I want to talk to you um, about Suzy Q. Uh, I saw it, uh, gave it a great review. I like the movie a lot. And, but first I want to talk to you about you. Uh, you're, you're definitely the furthest away interview that we've ever had on the show. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, I'm not always a big fan of Zoom video quality, but it's, it's great to, that I can do this, you know, and talk to people like you. Um, so just to kind of give us a, a quick background, how did you get into filmmaking and, and what is your origin story? I got into filmmaking. I was, I'm an, actually an ex-musician. I, I think whether or not you can be ex-musician, but uh, I used to sort of play in bands and do the whole releasing CD sort of thing. Um, and there was this demand for us to do videos for the band. And it was so prohibitively expensive to sort of engage somebody else to do it that I sort of put my hand up and went, hey, I'll learn how to do it. Um, and so it kind of started from there, you know, making music videos for our band and other bands would see what we'd done and say, Hey, can you do one for us? And so I do videos for other bands and, and suddenly I was making music videos for people. Um, and then I thought, hang on, I can extend this format and I can actually tell stories. Uh, so it would have been, I don't know, 15 years ago where I put my first sort of short out and, um, and I just really sort of had a second wind in life, if you like. I sort of almost reinvented myself and uh, what I wanted to do creatively. Um, and I still get to incorporate music, obviously, in what I do, which is, which is real joy. So bringing those two loves together. Um, but I certainly, I grew up um, sort of in, uh, in England, uh, went to school there and I spent a lot of time working in Ireland and sort of spent some time in, you know, living in the West Coast of Ireland as well. Um, so I, I did have that opportunity to simulate sort of those different sort of uh, spaces and cultures as well, um, which it does give you a, a stronger sort of more objective insight into, um, you know, sort of the way people think and behave. And, uh, and that, that was a real strength that I think I brought to my filmmaking. Um, I didn't have that sort of sort of parochial kind of uh, viewpoint in, in, in approaching, you know, the subjects that I deal with and, and, and the stories that I tell. Uh, very cool. Just to give us uh, in terms of the number of films you've done, is this your first feature documentary? Have you done other documentaries before? Uh, I actually did another documentary that was shelved, unfortunately. Uh, I won't go into the reasons for that. Very complicated. But uh, there certainly was a big education doing that first doc. I mean, it was a real uh, a joy to do. Um, I'd done lots of short films and I'd done a, a feature mockumentary that was released in Australia um, about a one hit wonder from the 80s that was making a, a comeback. Um, so sort of I dabbled in all sorts of areas in, in, in film, whether it was comedy or drama. Um, 
but really documentary seems to be um, a, a strong forte of mine that I, I think I bring personal sort of uh, strengths uh, to the genre um, that just seemed to work. Your uh, sort of subgenre of documentary is my, my favorite. I'm a, a big rock doc kind of fan, you know? Um, and this is an interesting film because uh, I didn't, I was saying to you before we rolled, uh, I didn't know much about Susie Quattro. Uh, and I, I knew much of her lineage. I had seen probably it's like, it's like somebody who, who doesn't think they like the blues, but if they listen to rock and roll, they've heard that their whole life. So, cause she was such an innovator, but like, how did this whole thing come about? Did you know her? Did you like, uh, how did you know of her? And, and, and how did you, uh, what was kind of the inspiration behind it? Well, I think the inspiration was I, I as a, you know, as being a musician, I, I always wanted to stink my teeth into a, a music doc and, but I wanted it to be something interesting, something, sort of a little unusual and uh, through a mutual friend um, who knew Susie, uh, she'd sort of uh, said to me, you know, no one's ever made a documentary on Susie Quattro. And, and that kind of blew me away. I thought, what? I mean, she was massively popular in Australia and England and Europe and, um, and sure enough, no one had. So I reached out to her through this friend and I said, look, I think I'm the guy to do it. And Susie laughed and says, why do you think you're the guy to do it? And I said, well, you know, I'm not a fan. And she was like, oh, what? And I said, let me clarify. I mean, I really admire you, but I never grew up with your music. So I was never a fan. Um, so I think that I would bring a certain objectivity to it and, and, um, and a certain, you know, because I love rock music and that's my background that I, I understand and sympathize with your, your journey and your story. And she loved that. So she said, yep, I think you're the guy to do it. <laughs> so we took it from there. One thing that's really cool, and you know, do me a favor and and uh, uh, don't be shy. Drop a few names. Talk about like you had some amazing access uh, for this. Like you got some great people. Give, give me a list, and then and just kind of like, how did you get to, like, how did you talk to some of these folks? Well, uh, initially, I knew exactly what I wanted for the documentary. Um, you know, because I knew that Susie had been a marginalized, forgotten. Uh, person in the, sort of the story of rock and roll that I needed to bring uh, s the heavyweights in <laughs> to to test you know testify to to her influence and greatness. So uh, I had a hit list, and um, I, I, I reached out to people like Alice Cooper and Debbie Harry, uh, Henry Winkler from Happy Days, Gary Marshall, the producer, uh, the guys from Talking Heads, um, uh, Lita Ford, Cherie Curry. Uh, Joan Jett, you know, people who, who knew her and, you know, um, were certainly influenced heavily by her. Um, I, I dragged in people from England like Sir Tim Rice, the composer, you know, um, Andy Scott from Sweet, uh, Don Powell from Slade. Uh, so the process was a lot easier than I thought it would be. I thought I would spend a year just like, you know, dead end email trails. Um, but, but thankfully and fortunately, Susie had some of those contacts to begin with, you know, 50 years in the industry, you're going to have a pretty thick black book. Uh, so she opened that book up to me and said, look, I do have this person's email. It's 10 years old. You may get them. You may not. Uh, so that kind of started my little sort of search and um, reaching out. But the surprising thing was how many of them just quickly put their hand up and said, yep, I'll do it. When do you want me? Which blew me away. And they cleared their calendars. They made room um, uh, because all of them to a person recognized that, 
you know, Susie had such a big influence and was so important in the story of women in rock, but her story had been marginalized and forgotten. You know, people in, in the States, certainly, you know, the majority of them have no idea who Susie Quattro is. And if they do, they think Susie Quattro, oh yeah, uh, Leather Toscadero and Happy Days. And that was such a minor part of her overall story uh, and her journey. Um, so it was really fantastic to have those, those celebs and rock stars put their hand up and just say, you know, if, if you fly over to LA, I'll do it. <laughs> um, and so a lot of the process of putting the film together, it took a few years, um, but a lot of that was simply just traveling and scheduling to sort of grab these people. Um, we had fantastic names like Tom Hanks and Ron Howard put their hand up and say, we'll do it, when do you want us? But unfortunately conflicts and schedules got in the way eventually because you know those guys are in high demand um but it was just really fantastic to have them put their hand up and say yeah look we'd love to be a part of it which is really indicative of you know how important Susie Quattro was so you started out uh in terms of the process was she the first interview was it like let's get all this stuff with her and then um you know because it could have just been a profile you could have just talked to her um and you got some great footage you have some great archival footage. Uh, and I don't, that's a whole thing. That's like mm. making a whole other movie right there, right? Right. So what was the process? Was it like, let, we, did you talk to her and then talk to these other people? Was it back and forth? Like, how do, how do you like write that sort of, uh, give it a structure kind of thing? Yeah, I didn't really have a clear structure in mind when I started. I really wanted it to be, uh, I wanted it to evolve. I wanted to understand her. I wanted to understand how people felt about her. I didn't want to impose my own uh, restrictions or vision on this. You know, it had to be her story. Um, so really it was a back and so to and fro process. I'd interview her, you know, in England at one stage, or I'd interview her when she was on tour in Melbourne, or, or I interviewed her at her birthday party in Detroit. So I did a lot of flying around, following her around on, on tour and, and, and sort of these family reunions, et cetera. Um, and it really, I, I don't think the story really presented itself until about halfway through um, when uh, there was one particular point in time, I sat down with her in, at her home in England and we had the film crew there and we had the lights set up and you know, the, um, the sound guy there with the boom. And I felt we weren't really getting anywhere because Susie was giving uh, sort of stock answers because she'd been doing this for 50 years and, you know, in the industry. And, and so she'd just, you know, bring out this, the, the chestnuts, the old answers. And, and so uh, Tate, who's the producer sort of suggested, well, why don't you just um, send everyone home and you s just sit down with her? You and you operate the camera, you do the sound, you put the lights up. And I did that. And, um, and on that particular day, it became more of an intimate conversation between two friends, if you like. Um, and that's when she actually opened up and sort of those, those, the, the mask dropped. And I got to see the real Susie Quattro, not the icon or the, the rock star. Um, and at that moment, I realized we have a film. One of the things I noticed is that, you know, you're getting... Uh, very like you talk to her family she talks mm. about her family she talks about leaving her family you know and this is probably stuff she she didn't really talk about all that much and you do get these yeah. very kind of like relaxed sort of human interviews they don't feel like talking heads i think that's the hardest mm. thing i mean mm. uh, i remember uh, james toback talked about he interviewed mike tyson for his documentary tyson 
And he said, I asked him one question. He talked for 45 minutes. You know? <laughs> Mike Tyson has no filter, you know, yeah. but most people are not Mike Tyson, but she yeah. seems very real. She seems very genuine, you know? Um, oh and- yeah, very much. She, she wears her heart on her sleeve, but there, there's a certain defensiveness there. And I think that's, that's natural after sort of being in, in the industry for that period of time. And, you know, you get journalists asking the same questions to her over and over again. And, uh, um, so there was that process in the early stages where I felt like I was stripping layers off trying to get to the real person. And to her credit, she allowed me to do that, even though I guess she wasn't used to doing that. <laughs> and so uh, there was a certain amount of trust being built through that process, um, certainly in that first year anyways of, of uh, being in her life. Um, but, you know, documentaries are a very weird beast because I'm sure most documentary makers would tell you that, in some respects, they're a lot harder than doing a feature film, a dramatic feature film um, with narrative because it's a very um, isolating process when you make documentaries. Um, you, you sit in a room by yourself for 15 hours a day. Um, you know, there's no, it's not a very collaborative experience apart from those early stages of filming interviews. Um, it's, it's a very, yeah, it's a very isolating process to go through and sort of build this story and, um, and most of it is self-editing to begin with anyway, certainly the rough cuts. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's, and certainly in terms of financially speaking as well, documentaries, they're a lot harder to entice investment, of course, you know, cause it's such a, a risky proposition. And when, when you're dealing with a rock documentary, the licensing costs alone, um, you know, they give you an aneurysm. They're just, they're frightening. You know, and if you don't know the right people and you, if you don't know the right hoops to, to navigate uh, to lessen those costs, um, you could find yourself spending two years and shelving a project because you can't afford to pay for the licensing, the songs, the, the images, the, the footage. Um, so that in itself was um, a, a massive education to do that and not make the mistakes. Yeah, I think a lot of people, um, when they go into this, and especially with music, um, they, they don't realize how expensive it is. In terms of process for this, like, so you started uh, talking to her, and then, like, how long were, how long were you actually filming? Because, you know, I, like, there's, like, docu years, it's, like, dog years. Yeah, the initial process, I think, of filming and sort of, you know, flying around and, and you know, getting those, those fantastic interviews, um, going through her archives, which her personal archives are extensive and fantastic. Um, you know, that, that took about 18 months, you know. Um, then there was the period of, you know, sort of chasing licensing down and, you know, getting things signed off on, getting things paid for. Um, you know, that, that takes another 12 months at least. Sort of ticking all those licensing and permission boxes is, is probably the most lengthy process of it all. Um, you know, because we had to, we had to uh, get permission and pay for every single image, piece of footage, piece of music. And we're talking, you know, there's, I think there's 600 still images alone in this documentary, um, as well as her whole catalog of songs, which, uh, you know, is spread in, you know, in a wide range of um, uh, publishers and then things like that. So, and, and I just really wanted to ensure that all her hits were represented and we had access to all those key clips like Happy Days and Annie Get Your Gun. And um, 
so you know i'm not even going to tell you the budget for that licensing but um you know that that's a, that's a doco in itself you know i could probably write a you know a help book for documentarians on <laughs> what to expect and what you're going to pay i think people need that book uh, you know like i think so make, i mean if i had that book to begin with i'd be a you know be a lot how to make a, a lot less gray hairs how to make a rock doc would be a good um, would be a would be a good resource just because I, I yeah. think uh, you know I remember um, there was a great rock doc called "It Might Get Loud" um, by um, uh, Davis Guggenheim and they were talking about just like having to search through all these archives and find all of this footage and you know they were going through YouTube and reaching out to people and it's like this extensive process it's like you know mm. it's like you know uh, and then at the end of it, you know, you know, you can find all the footage and then it's like, okay, well, how much is this going to cost? And when is it available? And, you know, uh, and it's, it's mind blowing. And then you also have the task of actually editing the movie once you right. get all that stuff. Uh, and you can do a lot with fair use. Like you can use fair use mm. a lot, but you know, uh, fair use, you know, is I think an American thing. I'm not sure how it is an American thing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's so like, I don't know if it holds up in Austria. Is there a fair use in far more restrictive here? Uh, There are certain instances of fair use, but for most part, um, someone's got their hand out. Right. Okay. So Mm. yeah. Cause in, you know, here, cause I've, I've done things like movie reviews and stuff or, or you do do, uh, like a, a video essay or something for YouTube. Yeah. Uh, and usually you can get you, if, as long as you change the footage enough, as long as you're not just showing a scene, if you're mm. talking over it, if you're making commentary, you change the visual, you can usually get away with fair use. But for the stuff you like, you would take a scene from Happy Days and just plunk it in the middle of your movie. Yeah, you, you got to pay whoever owns Warner Brothers or Happy, whoever owns Happy Days. Well, so, the curious thing about the Happy Days footage was, uh, you know, we, we, we were initially chasing up permissions and, and licensing for it. Um, we simply could not find the person to green light it, to tick that box because no one knew who was in charge of it. You know, we'd gone through CBS and we'd gone through, I think Universal who took over at some stage and then somebody took over them. And not only could they not find who actually could give the permission, they couldn't find the footage because no one knew where it was. Um, so there's this whole process of, you know, backing, you know, backwards and forwards and actually chasing people up and kicking some butts and saying, you know, we really need this high quality footage. Um, they came through eventually and looked, they were fantastic surprisingly, cause we were, we were told some horror stories about, Oh, they're not going to, they're not going to be very uh, helpful, but uh, you know, to their credit, actually they came through and gave us a great rate. So it's crazy because meanwhile, like you're going through all this red tape, trying to get the footage. Meanwhile, you've got Henry Winkler on camera. You got Gary Marshall who like, exec produce the show right you know, like on camera talking about it uh yeah. and that's it, it's like two worlds and people say oh yeah it should be fine and then when you actually have to do, it's like trying to trace your lineage back to a country or something you, and right. talk, you know <laughs> you might as yeah. well be talking to consulates of a country or something trying to get uh, trying to get immigration papers um, yeah yeah well it was handy to name drop henry winkler you know to the to the licensees because that's it certainly does have traction but it certainly doesn't have this sort of like roll out the red carpet, welcome, yes, whatever you want kind of thing either. Um, you know, the process is still, you know, difficult to navigate. But uh, yeah, certainly having him involved in the film made it easier. Like I said, I enjoyed it immensely. Um, 
what's next for it now? It's uh, it's being distributed uh, in in Australia and also here in the states. Well, we had our uh, theatrical run in Australia, thankfully, before the uh, the COVID nineteen hit. Um, so you know we had the traditional release in Australia, which was fantastic, and the same went for England, and the same went for I think Germany. It's still running at the moment in cinemas in Germany, um, but we had to delay our US release because of you know the pandemic, um, and so our distributor decided to reshape the model um, and not go for that traditional theatrical run and instead go straight for the VOD. Uh, so it, it, I think um, it gets released uh, in the States on the 3rd of July, by memory. Um, so, um, yeah, really pumped about that because, you know, it's really important for us to, you know, tell her story to, uh, you know, the American audience because they're, you know, they're, they're kind of the ones who missed out on, you know, the wonderful, uh, you know, Susie Quattro uh, journey, so. I, I'm a big fan of Rock Docs, and I thought yours was exceptionally well done. I, I loved, you know, it, it's really hard because, uh, you know, and I've said this before on my show where, you know, like you have a, a and in fact, I, I interviewed a, a documentarian recently who had made a, a film called The Right Girls about like refugee women from South America coming through Mexico. And he had gone there. These were transsexual women and they were having a really hard time. And uh, I was like, you know, you, you see stuff like that. And it's like, well, how do you make it entertaining? How do you make it palatable? Because, you know, your first objective as a filmmaker is you have to entertain while you're mm. informing. And I think, you know, you have to luck out with the subject. You know, Susie Quattro is an entertaining person. You know, yeah. she's and she's interesting to listen to. And, you know, even her family is interesting, you know, like and they're frank as hell. They're like mm. when you start talking to these, you're like, Oh, I can't believe that person said that on camera. <laughs> you know, uh and then you know, and then of course when you get, you know, somebody like Debbie Harry or Alice Cooper or somebody like that, of course people are gonna listen to that. You know, those that's the the big fish names that you're gonna talk to, but uh, I also like the visual style that you used a lot. I thought you got a lot of great, uh, not just a lot of great footage, but the visual style, the transitions and everything just helped move it because the movie moves, you know. It, yeah, I really, I really wanted to uh, reflect the aesthetic of, of what we were doing um, with 70s glam music, sort of embrace that whole exciting aesthetic of, 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 of the glam movement and sort of infuse it into that style. Uh, but you raised an actual interesting point. I just wanted to touch upon that with with the family and the sisters. And a lot of people walk away from the film saying, wow, those sisters were quite brutal, weren't they? And I have to tell them, you know, they're actually lovely people. They're really lovely girls, uh, Susie's sisters. You just have to understand that in context, it's an Italian family and they're very vocal and they're very honest. Um, they do love each other. You know, they're very fond of each other. They just, there is that strange reluctance to, to uh, give her that kind of validation that she desperately wants. Um, but uh, as, as people, um, they're absolutely wonderful. Uh, I really enjoyed my time with them and uh, following them around and, uh, you know, sitting down and talking with them. Um, so it, it is an, it's an, it's an interesting dynamic. I thought, um, you know, there's a couple of times when my mouth dropped open, I, I think, when I was watching, and I, I thought, wow, you had somebody to say that on camera. And it seems like <laughs> they did so voluntarily. They just, it just came out, uh, which yeah. is the best stuff you can get. But uh, anyway, congratulations on the film. I'm going to wrap up. But um, 
if people want to know more about you, about the movie, where can they find you on the web? Utopia distribution. They're the ones putting it out. And I believe they're the ones handling the, uh, the VOD stuff. Thanks so much, Liam. The film is Susie Q. Uh, and, uh, we'll look, look forward to seeing it. I definitely, I highly, I wrote a great review about it. You could read it. it's on the website. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, you know, we'll, We'll look, we'll look for more from you as well. When you have another project, definitely, you know, uh, keep me posted. We'll have you back on the show. Thanks so much, Jason. Really appreciate it. And that's all we have time for today. Thanks so much for taking this trip down the rabbit hole. For more of our content, including our movie reviews, visit our website, norestoftheweekendpodcast.com. Don't forget to like, rate, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. I'd like to thank JMR Rentals for sponsoring this episode. For more on them, visit their website, jmrny.com. And once again, I'd like to thank my guest, Liam Firmiger. For Behind the Rabbit Productions, I'm Jason Godby. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time.